Hey team, and welcome back to another episode of the Women in Ocean Science podcast. Firstly, I must apologize for the quality of this introduction. My uh, microphone is having a field day, uh, pun intended, and uh, I am stuck with my Apple headphones to record this. So last week, it was World Sea Turtle Day, the day where we celebrate the beauty of these ancient marine creatures and raise awareness about the plight and the challenges that they are facing in an ever-changing ocean. Charlie and I thought it would be fitting today to release the episode that we recorded with a sea turtle biologist. We had a lot of fun recording this and, you know, I don't really know very much about turtles, so I definitely learned a lot along the way too. We're absolutely stoked to share this with you today um, and I think we'll jump right in. Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Mad St. Clair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists. Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science. From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas. We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications. And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Now, every budding young marine biologist thinks that all marine biologists study turtles, though most of us know that this illusion is pretty quickly shattered once at university. But for some marine scientists, studying turtles is the reality. And joining us today on the Women in Ocean Science podcast is PhD student from King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, Lindsay Tanabe, who is currently studying sea turtle nesting ecology in the Red Sea. Her research uses a mixed methods approach to understand more about turtle populations in this understudied region. In the field, she conducts turtle nesting surveys on foot and also with drones. She also assesses population connectivity using photo ID methods, satellite tagging and genetic tools. Of the seven extant or living species of marine sea turtle that grace our ocean, nearly all species are now classified as endangered with three of the seven existing species, the hawksbill, green and loggerhead turtle, being listed as critically endangered. This is largely due to human activities and lifestyles, and the World Conservation Union, IUCN, has identified five major hazards to sea turtles, which we'll be touching upon today. Today, we'll be chatting to Lindsay and discussing threats and the project she is working on, which investigates the impacts of stresses such as climate change, plastics and bycatch. Today, we'll be diving into Lindsay's most recent paper, which she lead authored, on the implications of nest relocation for morphology and locomotor performance of green turtle hatchlings. So, Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. We are thrilled to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing fabulous. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to chat with you guys about turtles. Are you still out in the in the Red Sea at the moment? Where are you in the world? Yes, I'm in Saudi Arabia. There's actually a sandstorm today, so it is quite stormy. All field work was canceled for the day, but it's still really nice to be in a tropical and warm environment at the moment. Oh my gosh, we are so 
incredibly jealous. Charlie and I are still locked down <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. <laughs> Dreaming of of when we can get back out to the field and to do to do some field work. Oh, I know. I am dying to get back in the sea. And uh, Lindsay, you're also off off this weekend on a field trip, aren't you? Yes, I'm really excited. Hopefully, I'm going to be tagging some sea turtles with satellite tags to really work on my PhD and try to get all the field work done this year. Gosh, this is this is so so incredibly exciting, and and I'm very 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 jealous. Um, so yeah, we're here today to talk to you about sea turtles and um, about your most recent paper, which I am really excited about. I had a lot of fun reading it last night. Um, so the title of the paper we are discussing today is the implications of nest relocation for morphology and locomotor performance of the green turtle hatchlings. Um, and this was published in 2021. Um, so Lindsay, do you want to kick off with a podcast summary, kind of similar to an abstract um, of your paper? Sure, I would love to. So essentially, I was really interested in seeing the effects of relocation. Relocation is a really common strategy used for conservation at many sea turtle hatcheries to protect them against poachers. But I wanted to see how this was affecting the hatchlings, how it was impacting their fitness and their morphology. So essentially, I had the really fun job of getting to test the, their skills. And their, I put them through several running courses and swimming courses to see if relocation actually affected their speed and their locomotor performance. It was a really cool project, and I'm really excited to talk to you guys about it today. So thank you so much for bringing the spotlight on this paper. Oh my God, Lindsay, you put them through swim tests. So I've just got this image now of you basically surrounded by hundreds of baby turtles running swimming lessons for them. It was hilarious. I'm not going to lie. All of this was done also, of course, at night. So at around midnight, I would be running the turtles through a little gutter. And essentially, I put um, a I put a light on one end of the, gu the gutter that was filled with water. And because hatchlings are attracted to artificial light, they would swim towards it. And I would use that just to time how fast they were going. It was a really interesting and fun project. Wow. And you were also looking at, um, so you were looking at this locomotive performance, and you were also looking at um, this ability to write themselves, like, i.e. flip from shell to belly. Um, talk us through this. Okay, so essentially what I did is uh, for each hashling that I was testing, I would use um, a small marker to just write the number of the turtle so we wouldn't get them confused apart and we could tell them apart from each other. And what we did was we would lay them on their back um, on a sandy flat surface and time how long it takes for them to flip over. And this is a really good proxy for fitness because of course, um, turtles that are have higher fitness are able to um, self-write themselves faster. And this is a way that they could avoid predators in the natural environment. And it's just a great way for us to determine how strong they really are. I remember in the paper, it said, what was it? 2,133 2, hatchlings from 37 nests. That's a, that's a big data set. How many of these hatchlings actually made it into the uh, locomotor trials? That's a great question. So that number that you just read um, was for all of the hatchlings from the nest, but we only 
did these tests on 20 hatchlings from each of the 30 nests. Wow, wow. And um, in terms of the actual samples, the samples that you were comparing of, of the hatchlings, you were looking at relocated nests versus nests that you called in situ that were, remained where they were. And you were also looking at this differentiation in the scute pattern. Funnily enough, I actually learned what a scute was um, when I was reading your paper. Could you tell us a bit about, um, what, firstly, what a scute is for our listeners um, and also um, what these differences in scute uh, morphology, I suppose, are? Sure. So... All um, hard-shelled sea turtles have scutes on their on their parrot. God, did I just say it wrong? <laughs> no, no, it's okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Amazing. It's Sorry, it's a difference between like American accent and you know English accent. So don't worry about it. Yeah, um, it's real, guys. The struggle is real. <laughs> don't worry. Um, so yeah, all hard-shelled species of sea turtles have scutes on their carapace. And these scoots can sometimes shed and regenerate with time. And the pattern is going to be different for each species of sea turtle. And I was studying the green sea turtle. And they have um, what we would call a normal scoot pattern of four on the sides and five in the center. We call that vertebral scoots. So their scoot patterns can help us. F- uh, <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. <laughs> this is real. Okay. Their scoot patterns can help us identify their health by, because oftentimes if there's a mutations in their number of scoot patterns, this can be a sign of some internal abnormalities or mutations. So oftentimes in hatchlings, we do find scoot abnormalities, whereas in the full-grown adults, there are much less in proportion. So scientists have figured out that Maybe this means that there's some internal yeah, mutations that mean their fitness is a little bit lower so that therefore they cannot survive to adulthood as well as hatchlings that have the normal scoot pattern. Mm, that's wow. fascinating. Yeah. It really is. And I just I just want to go back to, you know, why you were doing these tests in the first place. So, you know. As the title says, there are obviously implications with nest relocation and you're testing, you know, the performance of these hatchlings to see if there's any difference between those that, you know, have been left in their their, their native nest or in those ones that have been relocated. And it absolutely blew my mind actually reading this because for so long, relocating hatchlings has been a very widely used practice. Um, you know, this is a, a conservation practice that's done for a number of different reasons. But as the, you know, the title of your paper suggests that there actually are potential implications. And so if you could talk through this a little bit, um, that would be brilliant. Yeah, sure. So a lot of rookeries and hatcheries, so hatcheries are where um, sea turtle organizations and nonprofit organizations try to maximize the maximize the success of the sea turtles to ensure that as many of them survive as possible. And so a lot of times these hatcheries will actually relocate um, the nests into a protected area. Sometimes they shade these. Um, so temperature, uh, sorry, sea Sea turtles um, have sex-dependent... Wow, I cannot speak today. (laughs) Don't worry, that's me every podcast. I'm always tripping over my words because I'm just so excited about turtles or whatever I'm talking about. I need to to slow down because I'm so stoked right now. Okay, sorry. (laughs) That's what we like to hear. That's what we like to hear, Lindsay. 
All right, try to. Okay. So sea turtles demonstrate temperature-dependent sex determination, and this means that the temperature of the nest determines if the hatchlings are female or male. So with warmer temperatures, there's a greater proportion of females being produced. And this is really new science and within the past uh, few decades. And a lot of the hatcheries are picking up on this and they're trying to decrease the temperature of their nests. So there's a lot of different methods that people are using. Some people, for example, are watering the nest with ocean water to try to cool it down. Mm. Others are using shading techniques um, and putting a big uh, canopy over the relocated um, nest with the intention of decreasing the temperature and trying to produce more males. In addition, a lot of hatcheries are doing are moving and relocating the the eggs in order to protect them from poachers. Yeah. So in a lot of regions around the world, people are still unfortunately collecting and consuming these sea turtle eggs. And this is very common where I was doing my study in Malaysia. In Malaysia, when I visited, it was still legal for people to actually consume and sell sea turtle eggs. So I went to a market one day and they were everywhere. And I was really shocked by this. Um, I did not think that this was something that was really allowed, but apparently it, it was at the time. And so, of course, there were a lot of people poaching to try to make money off of these eggs. So it is a really big issue. And most of the hatcheries in Malaysia will actually relocate the nests. But the one I was at was really unique because it can't be accessed very easily. So there weren't a lot of poachers there. You can't get to it um, on foot or by car. You have to access it by a boat. So there's a lot less people around and there's less, obviously, poaching. Um, So we were able to leave some of the nests in situ, which was what made this study possible. So I could actually compare how the relocation affected the, the hatchlings. Gosh, Lindsay, I just have so many questions about this. I don't really know which direction to go in first. Um, But jumping back to what you said about um, this temperature being able to affect sex determination, do you could you possibly go into a little bit more detail about this? Because, you know, in mammals, sex is is determined by the sex chromosomes that are present at the time of fertilization. So to think that turtles could, you know, come out either boy or girl, um, depending on temperature, is really, really fascinating. Do we know about the mechanisms that are driving this? Unfortunately, a lot of it is still unknown. But Mm. I actually did my master's at KAUST on sand temperatures in the Red Sea, because worldwide, obviously, climate change is impacting several nesting beaches, and the temperatures are increasing. And there's actually a study done in Australia, in the Great Barrier Reef, Um, region, which found that up to 99% of the hatchlings were being produced as female. So of course, it's going to be, it's going to have a pretty big impact with rising temperatures in the upcoming decades. Wow, that's absolutely nuts. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. And Lindsay, actually something that I'm I'm sure you're aware, aware of, in fact, I know we've spoken about this before, actually, is this issue of plastic pollution. So I actually remember you know, reading a paper that shows that plastic can change the thermal tolerance of sand and mean that the sand can never cool down to, you know, the temperatures needed for males to be born. Um, And this in turn is also exasperating this issue of, you know, um, 
skewed sex ratios towards females. Um, and so I just, I find, I find your research mind blowing really, because this common conservation practice obviously is something, as you say, out in Malaysia is being done all the time, um, but is possibly actually just contributing to more females being born. So, I mean, what do you think? Do you think it's like the the better of two evils? Um, are we going to have to stop relocating nests because of this? Is it having um, a huge detrimental impact? Or do you think it's about finding a way to adapt our relocating techniques? Um, because really the, you know, the threat of poaching far outweighs the threat from relocating nests? That's a really good thought and a really good question. So um, in my paper, I really highlighted that, of course, uh, some beaches do need to relocate, but the method that they use for relocation is really, really important. And how they handle these eggs is also really important. Um, so they need to be handled with care. They need to be re relocated as soon as possible after the female lays her eggs. And the dimensions of the nest should also try to replicate the in situ, the natural nest that the female had dug. Um, a lot of hatcheries do have some, some sort of protocol. For example, a lot of them try to make the nest the same depth as the natural nest. From what I've read, a lot of hatcheries don't have a protocol or a um, regulation for maintaining the width of the nest. So oftentimes the eggs can actually um, go farther up in the sand column. And of oh, course wow. the shallower, yeah, the shallower um, eggs can have warmer temperatures because they're closer to the surface of the sand. Wow. That is so fascinating. Cause of course that's just something very simple that can be a huge difference between actually, you know, relocating these eggs and inadvertently causing them all to come out as female. Um, gosh, that absolutely blows my mind. And so, you know, I suppose your research could really help contribute to putting in place, um, you know, guidelines for relocating nests. Is that something that you're working on? Yes, um, I'm actually really interested in that because in the Red Sea, they plan on developing some ecotourism locations. And a part of that is they're really interested in protecting as many of these sea turtle beaches as possible. And there have been talks about what the best way to do that, if they should be relocated, if they should just be protected in situ. So I really hope that some of my research can be implemented into their guidelines and regulations. And if they do decide that they should relocate some of the nests, that they um, that I can help them create some sort of protocol so we can decrease the likelihood of, you know, um, having any negative impacts on these hatchlings. Yeah, and I mean, your your research had some really strong, significant results, um, which hopefully we'll be able to drive forward this um, this management and regulation of how people are relocating nests, because um, some of the key findings from your study, you had um, significantly higher proportions of this abnormality in this in the scute um, in in the hatchlings that had been relocated, um, and also significantly shorter incubation durations for these relocated clutches. So this is a really big deal seeing these shorter incubation periods. And what can shorter incubation periods mean for hatchlings? So the incubation period changes depending on the temperature of the nest. Mm -hmm. So the hotter the temperature, the shorter the incubation period. So I didn't have temperature loggers at the time. 
to put into these nests. So I don't know exactly how hot they were getting. So I use incubation duration as kind of a proxy for temperature. So the shorter incubation periods can help indicate that the nests were a little bit hotter compared to those with a longer incubation period. So and on those ones that um, had had the shorter incubation period of the relocated nests, what was the depth of those compared to the original nests? So we did try to replicate um, the same depth as the original ones, but it's kind of hard to do, especially because a lot of these hatcheries are using untrained volunteers, just mm. um, people who wanted to get involved in sea turtle research, which is really great, but it really highlights the importance of really training these volunteers as best as possible um, into how to create the same depth and how important it is to actually take the time because these these nests can be really deep. These turtles can spend hours using their hind flippers to create a deep enough nest uh, for all of her clutch because these yeah. big green sea turtles can have to, you know, over 130 eggs at one time. So of course these nests have to be pretty massive. So it does take the volunteers and me like a very long time to dig up these nests. So we really just need to be patient and realize that it's worth the time that we're taking to replicate yeah. the same yeah, dimensions. Do you know what? You actually raise a very, very interesting point because this actually links into a chat that um, myself and a couple of other marine scientists were having on Clubhouse last night about um, coral reef citizen science. Hmm. And one of the topics that came up on this talk last night was, um, you know, citizen science ranges from the armchair marine biologists who sit there at home and, and can do stuff online, right through to those people who want to come out and volunteer and get hands-on um, experience. And one of those things, uh, we were talking actually in the context of reef restoration last night, and, you know, I was being a bit of a negative Nancy and saying, you know, <laughs> I'm not always seeing people doing reef restoration in a way that I feel is actually helping the health of the reef because, you know, resorts are selling to tourists or, or eco volunteers that just want to literally put coral on a frame. And it's not always, I was saying, you know, I've not always seen it done with kind of the environment in mind more the oh, I want to do this because I want to do the volunteering and I want to do the Instagram photo and all that. And so it's very interesting to hear you say that we are with this hands-on approach to volunteerism and um, citizen science when we do get, um, you know, non-scientists in and um, there is this lack of training that it can again affect conservation. So I just think it's, it's very interesting that, that you did mention that because I think it's something that's very, very important. Totally. And actually, a lot of hotels also try to have these sort of hatcheries to get guests to come to their hotel and take a selfie with hatchlings. So a lot of these hotels aren't always doing the hatcheries in the best way. They're just trying to produce as many hatchlings as possible for their guests and not necessarily for the benefit of the sea turtles. Yeah, it's it's so tough, isn't it? Because I know we're going off onto, you know, a slight tangent here around ecotourism. And I definitely am an advocate for it. I think in terms of educating people, it's fantastic. And I'd much rather that they were spending their money on, you know, eco tours and doing things that potentially could have a good impact for the environment, as opposed to just going and laying on the beach um, and not engaging at all. But I think it's so important to always have you know, a critical eye on these things, because as we're learning that 
you know, best intentions made, still this could actually be having a detrimental impact. Um, and really, you know, that, that, that can have far-reaching negative consequences. And, and if we can improve it, then we definitely should. Totally. I agree. Yeah, 100%. I, I agree. Um, and now coming back onto the other kind of findings from your study, Lindsay, what was happening with the skew pattern? What were the significant findings um, with that? I mean, I know that you've said that there is this potential implication on having this skewed abnormality and consequences for the actual hatchling's fitness and its ability to survive. Um, but what, what did your study find? Um, were there more abnormalities in the skew pattern from relocated nests? What were the key findings? So surprisingly, I didn't find a significant correlation between um, the fitness of the hatchlings with if they had scoop mutations or not, but there were significantly more scoop mutations on hatchlings that were relocated versus less left in situ. Oh, that's really interesting. So um, aside from that, the I guess the more important findings from the paper then would be the relocation rather than the scoop pattern? Yes, exactly. So at first, when I was designing this study, I was really interested in the scoop mutations, actually. Um, yeah. There's another researcher there. Her name was Marion, and she was doing a study on the scoop patterns, and she was trying to find out if it was maternal, so if it was passed on by the mothers. Um, and so this got me really thinking about this the impacts of the scoop mutations and if this actually affects mutations. So that was actually the, the uh, driving force for the study. But in the end, I thought that the mo more interesting story was about uh, relocation versus the net, the clutches that were left in situ. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is so interesting. Cause I, I remember this when I did my master's thesis, how you go out to study one thing and then as you're collecting the data, it just evolves into something else entirely. And especially when you get to the stat stage as well, and you start finding significant results in areas that weren't the, the main focus of your study. And it really becomes very, very interesting. Yeah, totally. It, it was a really happy accident. I think I'm really glad that it all worked out the way that it did, because I think that the conservation implications of this are now pretty big and that it can really help um, a lot of future sea turtles um, at hatcheries in the future. No, definitely. It's it's such important research. And I, I love what you say there, Mads, about how things evolve when you're in the field. They really do, because it's often not until you get out into the field that you really see the true picture and things become a lot more black and white and you, you begin to sort of understand um, these intricate sort of like relationships. So, Lindsay, in this study, you focused on, on green turtles, um, but do you think that all turtle species are going to be impacted the same by relocating nests, or are there differences between species in the, you know, the depth of nests that they, they dig, um, and do you think that this could have, yeah, do you think it'll have similar implications for all species? I do think that all of these species could be affected by relocation. Um, there have been some studies on loggerhead turtles in the Mediterranean who had similar results, um, but all of the seven species of sea turtles do share a lot of um, reproductive life history strategies. So they're all pretty similar, even though they're different species. So yes, I do think that it would affect um, all of them. 
And um, taking that onto, uh, I guess, the wide picture, let's uh, kind of drift away from your paper now into the the wider threats that are happening at the moment that are threatening not only turtles, but their habitats. Um, what kind of a future are we looking at for turtles? Unfortunately, turtles are really affected by human impacts. There's several reasons for that. For example, um, sea turtles are air breathers, so they have to come to the air water uh, surface interval quite often. And this means that they are quite vulnerable to getting stuck in ghost nets. So nests, ghost nets are net, nets that fishermen accidentally discard um, in the ocean. And it might not be on purpose, but these turtles can get trapped in them and then they would actually drown because they're not able to get to the surface. So that is a really big issue. Um, mm. Yeah, so sea turtles are really vulnerable to a, quite a wide variety of human impacts. So we've got cl- climate change, we've got ghost nets. Um, this this is really, really quite worrying uh, future for, for turtles that we have. Is this all species that we're going to see that are impacted by these changes? I would assume yes, because all oceans are affected by climate change and humans, no matter where they are. So there's just such a big variety of of these threats that are affecting sea turtles, whether it is even things like um, coastal development and artificial lighting that is on nesting beaches. There's just so much that we could talk about that is threatening the sea turtle populations. Man, it sounds like turtles are up against it. I mean, it it sounds hard enough being a turtle hatchling because I I found it fascinating to read in your paper, actually, that um, between 40 and 60% of hatchlings are predated on within the first two hours of life. Um, You know, it's crazy. Is it... Am I right in thinking that there's this crazy stat that says that only one in 1,000, or is it more, hatchlings will survive to adulthood? Yes, so it is one in 1,000 in a natural situation with natural predators, but with the human impact, it can actually be more like one in 10,000. Wow. So these turtles are really having to, you know, survive and thrive in order to survive until adulthood. Wow, you just... You just don't think that, do you? When you see a grown turtle, um, you know, you don't you don't think of everything that it's been through um, to get there and that it's one in a thousand or one in 10,000. That's absolutely blown my mind. Charlie, actually, you mentioned something when we were chatting earlier about plastic in, in beaches. Lindsay, how is how is plastic affecting turtles and, um, and, and hatchlings? Do you know? Yeah, so part of my PhD thesis, I'm interested in looking at plastics and their effects on sea turtles. So as Charlie was talking about um, the plastics on nesting beaches, I went to around five turtle nesting beaches in the Saudi Arabian Red Sea. And I cannot yet disclose the results of that study, but I'm going to be involved in a global uh, review on how how much plastic is on these sea turtle nesting beaches around the world. So I'm very excited about that. Um, The Red Sea is actually pretty unique because it doesn't have as much surface plastics as other oceans. And this is generally due to a lack of river input. So there's not as much um, of a source input of plastics. But that being said, there still is quite a lot of plastic when you go to the beach. (laughs) I can vouch. Oh, wow. 
That is incredibly interesting because I've spent most of my time um, as a marine scientist out in Indonesia where there is a lot of river input, especially mm. around, and, and I'm sure Charlie can vouch for this as well, around yep. monsoon season. Um, so that's very, very interesting that in the Red Sea, you don't experience as much pollution. Um, I mean, plastic is everywhere. We all know that. Um, but wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, it's a really unique part of the world and it's pretty understudied. So I have so many questions and I'm trying to answer as many of them as possible. And one of the things I'm interested in is plastic ingestion. So sea mm. turtles are also vulnerable to plas eating plastic because they've got these little spikes in their esophagus that make it really hard for them to regurgitate their food. So actually that's the purpose of these spikes um, it's to keep the food down and so they can throw up the water because when they're eating a lot of times they intake, of course, a lot of seawater. So that's the purpose of this. But of course, sea turtles didn't, didn't know that plastic pollution and humans were going to have such an impact on them. So a lot of times, you know, when these turtles are eating plastic, it gets stuck in their digestive tract and that can be the source of their demise, unfortunately. So there was a turtle here at Kaust that actually washed up um, right on campus. And I was able to do a necropsy and you know, take a look into its digestive tract. And I found over five meters of plastic fishing line that was throughout the entire GI tract. So it was um, started you know, right in the throat and it was actually wrapped around the flipper and then it went through the entire GI tract and out its cloaca. So definitely was wow. caused the death the death of this single turtle and it really highlighted like how how awful plastic is like that would be a ter terrible death so it was really sad to see mm. that but clearly you know turtles are consuming plastic um it, here in the red sea even though there's not as much as other regions of the world it's still definitely an issue gosh that's absolutely mental um and Lindsay, did you just want to mention for any non-scientists left listening what a cloaca is Oh, sorry. The cloaca, yeah, the cloaca is where it gets rid of its waste. Good question. Turtle. It's bottom. <laughs> um, God, that is, yeah, it's absolutely shocking, isn't it? Especially when you consider that sea turtles have been around for, what is it, 100 million years or so, maybe a bit more? Yeah, even more than that. So the late Triassic period. So they've been around like since the age of dinosaurs and they've been able to evolve to pass climate shifts, but due to human caused climate change, you know, the, the rate of temperature increase is unprecedented. So it's really, really rapidly changing. So we don't know if the turtles will be able to evolve and in time, unfortunately. So Lindsay, I mean, you know, from this conversation, it's quite apparent that turtles are facing a plethora of impacts. It's quite hard to really fathom. You know, it's quite a somber picture for them, but surely, surely there's something that we can do. You know, can you give us an, any advice for our listeners on what they can do to try and help protect sea turtles? Fortunately for sea turtles, they're so charismatic and we've got so many people around the world that can really relate to sea turtles and, you know, have interest in them and care about them. So there's a lot of people around the world who want to study them and volunteer trips um, in order to you know, help them, which is really awesome. So just try to get involved as much as possible. 
um, even beach cleanups around your local beaches. We can reduce the amount of plastics that go into our oceans, and we can really reduce our impact that we have on sea turtles, whether it is um, creating protocols on how to, for my research, um, especially how to um, relocate the hatchlings' nests. And other people study how we can have new lighting um, and artificial lighting on beaches and how we can reduce our impact on these sea turtles. So there's still a lot that can be done and it's not all doom and gloom for sea turtles. You know, they've made it this far. They've survived for millions and millions of years. So hopefully they can, you know, withstand the changes and the pressures that humans are putting on them now. I love that. And I also think as humans, we should you know, strive to create a better marine environment for these gorgeous, gorgeous animals. For sure. Absolutely. And also we've got beautiful people like you, Lindsay, working hard to try and protect them. So fingers crossed that the future will be much brighter for our turtles. Exactly. And thank you for people like you for shining the light um, on sea turtle conservation and the conservation of the ocean in general. It's very important. And uh, Lindsay, just quickly, if anyone uh, is wants, I would say this, it sounds a bit weird, wants to find you, I mean, on social media, of course, or uh, learn more about your PhD. (laughs) And actually, I also know that Lindsay does have a wonderful blog, uh, especially for those who are looking to get involved in marine science. Yes. Uh, Where can they find you, Lindsay? Yes. So my Instagram handle is at Linds, L-Y-N-D-S underscore C-S-E-A. I do have a blog. You can look up my name, Lindsay Tanabe. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions for aspiring marine biologists and those who are interested in studying sea turtles. Brilliant. Um, And are there any final words of wit and wisdom that you would like to share with, uh, with with the listeners? I'd like to let the listeners know that imposter syndrome is a really real thing with a lot of scientists. I face this issue a lot. And I mean, all you have to do is have a little faith in yourself. And then it really helps just, you know, knowing that everyone has some imposter syndrome and thinking that maybe, you know, you're not an expert, but it really just takes time and a lot of courage and then you'll get there. I love that, Lindsay. I think that's such an important point to make. And, you know, us women face, I would say, so many more challenges. And I I would argue that we feel like imposters a lot more often than necessarily Mm. men. So, you know... I love that. Absolutely love that. And just believe in yourself. And I can vouch. I've worked with Lindsay. She is kick-ass, everybody. Please go follow her on all her socials. She's amazing. And yes, Lindsay, believe in yourself because you're doing great things. Yeah, Lindsay, you're an absolute boss. Um, I followed your research for a while now and um, it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you about it in person.